All right, so I'm going to move around because I can. It's great. Uh, this is the second half of our series, Home. We spent a lot of time talking about how God is our home, and now I think this will be interesting, but um, we're going to talk about exile. We're going to talk about finding our home in exile. And so I know this is not the way you want to start your October, but, <laughs> but I don't, we just want to be honest about life. And so we've experienced a lot of loss this last 18 months. I want you to, I know this isn't fun, but I want you to stop and think of something that you've lost. I mean, maybe it could be a thing, a material object, but for most of us, it was experiences or hopes or dreams. What have you lost? I mean, if we're going to talk about exile, we need to, we need to feel it. What have you lost that you can't get back? You can't go back in time and have a normal senior year of high school. Or normal freshman year of college. On a lighter note, my alma mater, Ohio State, lost their undefeated football season. I can't go back and get that back. I, I want that, but I can't. But on a heavy note, some of us have lost family holiday gatherings. Some of us have lost friends. Some of our relationships are not what they were two years ago. And, 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 and we're not ever sure if they'll probably never be what they used to be and we don't know what to do with them moving forward. I know it doesn't feel good, but let's, we're going to talk about being honest. We don't live in denial. What have you lost? Uh, today's an introduction to this idea, this biblical theme of exile. Today's going to be a little bit of a history lesson on exile. I hope that's okay. But I pulled out one of my large books on my shelf. It's a theological dictionary, and this is the way uh, that dictionary defines exile. In theological terms, exile is the experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home where you belong, but for the present, you are unable to return there. It's a good theological definition of exile. The experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home. You know there's a, you know there's a home where you belong, but right now, you can't get there. It's exile. It raises questions that I think every human being on some level has to wrestle with, some more literally than others. But what does it mean to be displaced? to not be at home, to not be where you want to be. And this theme of exile, sometimes we miss it, but it's a major part of the biblical story. Israel's experience of exile informs so much of the biblical narrative and understanding what Jesus is stepping into and what he's doing. Now, we're not going to look. There's a lot of passages. I'm just going to pick a few. That's why I don't have one in in your bulletin this morning. We're going to look at a couple different passages, an overview. But you really are introduced to the theme of exile right away in Genesis. Most of the major themes start in Genesis and end in Revelation. In In Genesis 2 and 3, we meet Adam and Eve, and they are at home in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. But, of course, they rebel against God. They don't trust God for what is good and not good. They want to decide for themselves what is good and what is not good. And so they rebel, they sin, and they are exiled from the garden. Genesis 3.24, God drove out Adam and Eve, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve had been home, 
And now they can't go back. Something's gone wrong and they're not really at home anymore. Paradise is lost because of their sin. And this becomes a pattern all the way through the biblical story. The people of God now live as strangers in a land from which they have become alienated. And you could say, we'll get a little bit more historically specific as we talk about Israel, but you could say at a broad level, every time someone turns from God, they go into exile. Every time someone turns from God, they go into exile. Why? Because in the first half of our series, what did we say over and over again? God is our truest home. It's our truest home. So as you read through the biblical story, you will see God's people continuously in a profound state of exile, living in a world in which they do not belong and looking for a world that is yet to come. And much of the biblical story then is finding our way home. How do we get home? Now, we could talk about a lot of people. We could talk about Jacob. We could talk about Jacob's family, 400 years, really, in exile in Egypt. But I want to say a few words about Moses here at the beginning of our journey. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's court. It's really important because Moses kind of becomes a microcosm for Israel. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's court, and he learns the ways of Egypt. And then he discovers injustice. He discovers he's a Hebrew. He goes looking for his people. He sees them being abused and mistreated. And he fights violence with violence. And he kills a man. He's been trained in the ways of Egypt. That's all he knows. And so he fights violence with violence. He fights evil with evil and he kills a man. And what happens, Moses is basically exiled. (laughs) for 40 years in the wilderness. But good things happen in the wilderness. Good things happen in the wilderness. And Moses is changed. And after 40 years of exile in the wilderness, Moses comes back to lead God's people. And he doesn't fight with a sword anymore. He fights with the word of God. (laughs) What do we see in Jesus in Revelation? He's got a sword, but it's coming out of his mouth. Moses fights with the, let my people go. And God works through him and he frees his people. And that's the story of the Exodus. But before the exile, and this really does run parallel in many ways with Israel's story. Before Moses' exile, he's trying to be like Egypt. I mean, that's the frustrating story all the way through Israel is Israel. God wants them to be something different. God wants them to be something the world has never seen before. But over and over again, Israel just wants to be like all the other nations. That's what they want to do. That's all they want to do. Now, good things happen in exile. We'll talk about some of these things as we go through the next few weeks. But it it kind of is an exile where the Jews kind of learn what it it means to be the people of God. Honestly, if you think about our Old Testament, so much of our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures come from exile. Exile. The prophets are warning about exile. They're trying to lead the people, which is what we'll be looking at the next few weeks, lead the people through their time in exile. A lot of the writings come. We have the Torah, but during exile, all the wisdom literature and the prophets kind of come together. And God uses the exile, this, this time of pain and suffering, to inspire the imagination of these prophetically uh, Holy Spirit-anointed prophets. And they begin to dream, not simply of a return, but of a renewal, of a rebirth of the people of God. Because, because if, you, if, you, if you start in Genesis and you go to Revelation, you see we're not going back to just a garden. 
We're now going to a garden city. That's how Revelation ends. I mean, God is kind of renewing our home. It's a new creation. It's, an, it's a new covenant. It's a, it's a new future when Israel's sins will no longer come back to haunt them. Doesn't that sound like good news to you? Your sins will no longer come back to haunt you. It's a new future where God is building a people where obedience to God is no longer just a dream, but it's actually realized. A new heart. The prophets will talk about a new covenant, a new heart, God's law written on our hearts. And we'll get, in, we'll get into some of this and, and where it leads with the return from exile because we'll see leading up to Jesus, we'll get there later, but, but, the, but the people of Israel are going to go into exile and they're going to come back and they're going to be in the land, but they're still going to be in exile under Roman rule at the time of Jesus. In exile, as I said, Moses is renewed and God gives his people his law. God's heart. And if, I mean, I know, I know the law can be hard to just read through, but it's, it's actually worth studying. And if you ever want to, I have some books I, I would be happy to recommend if you want to dive in. It's not, it wouldn't be a quick thing. But, but the purpose of the law was to form Israel into a new kind of human society. Human, we've talked about this since the days of Cain. We've been arranged the same way in basically every human civilization, civilization since civilization began. And Cain was a murderer. <laughs> Turns out a murderer isn't the best way to arrange, doesn't always do the best in arranging people. And so God comes along and he's trying to form a new kind of people, arrange us in a new way, one the world has never seen before. And he gives the people a law that, that, that as Jesus summarizes, is meant to teach us how to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love our neighbor as ourselves. To be a just and worshiping society, to be a distinct people, God's people, a, a priestly nation. God wanted to do something new, something the world had never seen before, a people that trusted God would care for them and provide for them. But again and again, Israel wanted to be like the cool kids like Egypt, like Assyria, like Babylon. So God even knew this. Moses knew this. So let's look at a couple more verses. It's not a surprise. We're still in the Torah, Deuteronomy 28. We're kind of at the end of the books of the law. Verse 64, Moses anticipating that the people will not remain faithful, says, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. I want you to read this because I want you to feel like exile is not, you don't look forward to exile. There's no resting place for the sole of your foot. You just can't sit still. The Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and this powerful language, language, a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. That's life in exile. Now, now you read that, you've got to think about this. They're going into exile because they've been worshiping false gods. And we'll try to talk about our false gods of our day as we move through this series. But they're worshiping false gods. And what is one of the things that we say a lot frequently here? You and I, we, we worship false gods because these gods make us promises. And we trust that these gods are going to deliver on their promises. But they never do. <laughs> they just keep promising, 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 and they never deliver. That's why we have restless souls to our feet and a languishing soul, because we've entrusted ourselves to a lie. <laughs> so we end up in exile. 
Well, as exile goes hand in hand with the return from exile. Chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, which, I mean, these first 10 verses are really worth reading. They're amazing. I'm only going to read the first four. But Moses says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations when you're in exile where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God. You and your children and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. You love God and you love your neighbor. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. I'm going to tell you this is good news. Your God is a compassionate God. It's good news. And your God will have compassion on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. He will bring you home. It's good news. And I was thinking about this, this tension of how does Moses know that we're gonna, the people are going to go into exile and then come back? How does he know? And I just, I, I, Holy Spirit inspiration, I just think this is the journey of all humanity. That's part of Israel's story in so many ways is our story. And there's a song. I want to read to you the lyrics of a song. You guys have heard me talk about Andrew Peterson before. He's kind of a, he's an acoustic guy. He's kind of chill. I just, I love him. I love his lyrics. He's a storyteller while he sings. I've quoted him before. And he's got a song that I've been listening to throughout this series. It's been meaningful to me just because I find myself to be a prodigal from time to time. But I also, look, my son is 11 years old. He's almost 12, actually. He's entering into this adolescent season of his life. And I've played this song for Jay before because it's just true. It's just true. So listen to the lyrics of this song. You just, it, captures, it captures, I think, what we're seeing in Deuteronomy. This is what Andrew Peterson says. He sings it. It's called You'll Find Your Way. When I look at you, boy, I can see the road that lies ahead. I can see the love and the sorrow. Bright fields of joy, dark nights awake in a stormy bed. I want to go with you, but I can't follow. This is what he sings, Andrew Peterson, to his son. So keep to the old roads. Keep to the old roads, and you'll find your way. Your first kiss, your first crush, the first time you know you're not enough. The first time there's no one there to hold you. The first time you pack it all up and drive alone across America. Please remember the words that I told you. Keep to the old roads. Keep to the old roads and you'll find your way. You'll find your way. I love this. You'll see why I love this. He says, if love is what you're looking for, the old roads lead to an open door and you'll find your way. You'll find your way back home. Actually, when I first was listening to this song, kind of more intently, this is the part that made me a little emotional as I thought about Jay. Peterson continues, I know you'll be scared. When you take up that cross, and I know it'll hurt because I know what it costs. And he says, I love you so much, and it's so hard to watch, but you're going to grow up, and you're going to get lost. (laughs) Just go back. Go back. Go back, go back to the ancient paths. Lash your heart to the ancient mass and hold on, boy, whatever you do, to the hope that's taken hold of you and you'll find your way. 
find your way back home. I mean, that's, I, I got emotional because that's my story. I got lost. <laughs> Somehow my parents had the wisdom to point me to Jesus, and I went back to the ancient past. <laughs> I don't want Jay to get lost. I have a feeling Jay's going to get lost. I just want him to know where to go, to hold on tight to the hope that's taken hold of him. I want you to hold on tight to the hope that's taken hold of you. Exile is part of the experience of the people of God. We'll keep going. If you remember the story, Moses said, you don't need a king. You're going to be something different. You're a nation of priests. You're a priestly nation. You don't need a king because God is your king. And what did the people say? We want a king because all the other nations have a king and we want to be like the other nations. So God's like, fine, take a king, right? So you get Saul. Saul's not a good king. You get David. David's not perfect, but he's a pretty good king. And then you get Solomon. Solomon's really not a good king. Read through Chronicles. Solomon builds the temple, but he also builds, I think, a palace that's bigger than the temple. He builds other temples to other gods for his 700 wives. Solomon tries to be just like Egypt. And as Solomon is dedicating the temple to God in 1 Kings chapter 8, he's got this long prayer. And this is what he says. God, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off if they're exiled. But if they turn, if they, if they hold fast... If they keep to the old roads, if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land and the captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And then here it is, grant them compassion. You're God's compassionate. I hope that's good news. <laughs> grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive for that they may have compassion on them. I mean, again, exile was not a surprise to God. So Solomon dies. The united monarchy is split. Jeroboam leads the nation in the north and Rehoboam leads them in the south. The Assyrian Empire kind of becomes the dominant player over Egypt. And in the year 722, 721 BC, roughly around the time of Isaiah, the Assyrians destroy the 10 northern tribes. We don't even really historically know what happened to the 10 northern tribes. There's reasons for that. But the southern tribes, Judah, where Jerusalem is, they continue going until around the year 605. About a thousand miles away in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar decided he wanted more. He didn't have enough. And so he expands his empire. Babylon is now the power in the world. And they kind of, at first they annex Jerusalem. There's kind of three waves of exile. In 605 BC, they deport the king and most of the elites. That's where we'll talk about Daniel and maybe even later Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A puppet king is put in place. Eventually, Zedekiah rebels. They get annihilated by Babylon. There's another exile in 596, but 587, 586 BC, that's when the Babylonians annihilate Jerusalem, destroy the temple. Ezekiel sees the presence of God leave the temple. 
And the people are exiled. They are removed from the land. I want you to think about what that would mean. I want you to imagine the despair and the disorientation. Their home is gone. This dream of Zion is gone, is lost. The temple is no more. You're at a place where your home, Jerusalem, is is probably a couple months' journey away. (laughs) You arrive in a new land with only what you can carry. And now you are the bottom of everything. The way the world is arranged in the strata in Babylon, you're the bottom. You have no voice. You are despised foreigners. You don't even speak the language. And theologically, none of this makes sense. You're disoriented. It takes everything you have just to survive. You have to find a place to live. You have to figure out how to live. It seems God has abandoned you. You're surrounded by pagan temples and pagan idols. What do they do? What would you do? (laughs) Well, at first, they deny it. You and I are schooled in the way of denial. They say things like, it's only temporary. This won't last long. We'll be back in Jerusalem in no time. We'll only be here a few months, maybe a year tops. You got all these false prophets coming along. Some of them might be taking advantage of the situation, preying on people's fear. You know that happens, right? (laughs) People take advantage of circumstances and prey on your fear. But I think some were just desperate. <laughs> I mean, their world was falling apart. They can't, they're just living in denial. They can't accept what's happening. They're not at home, and it's not the way they want it to be. And so God sends them prophets to lead them, to guide them, to care for them. God always gives us what we need. And Jeremiah is one of those prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 29, we read this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the survivors of the exiles, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Was, was Jeremiah right to the people? Thus says the Lord, why did, and why did Jeremiah get left behind? Because Jeremiah was the one saying, uh, doom is coming. <laughs> and so the Babylonians were like, oh, you're not against us. You can stay here. So that's why you got to stay behind. Build houses, thus says the Lord of God to the exiles, verse 4, verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply, don't diminish. Don't give up, don't wait, don't live in denial. Multiply, do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In its peace you will find your peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts. Uh, well, I don't have this up there, but if you keep reading, that's where he warns about the false prophets. <laughs> There's people telling you that it's going to be temporary. It's going to be 70 years. So, so get ready. Multiple generations are going to be there. Jeremiah writes this letter to the exiles in Babylon. And he's saying, I can't offer you false hope. You need to accept reality. Don't live in denial. You're going to be there for a while. I know Babylon isn't your home, but you've got to make the best of it. You've got to learn to live in Babylon because that's where you're going to be. 
Now, I know, I know it's not your real home, but it's your home for now. Invest in it. Live there. Seek its well-being. Go on with your lives. Don't put things on hold. Carve out a life for yourself in Babylon. And here's the thing. This is what happens. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. <laughs> because the people finally accept reality. And they begin to invest in the welfare of Babylon. They make Babylon their home. The first, the first danger was that they did, would decrease. God's like, don't do that. So he leads them through that. But now there's a new danger, right? <laughs> the new danger is that these kids have been born in Babylon. And they've heard stories of Zion, but they've never been to Zion. They've never been to Jerusalem. They've never seen this city that their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents talk about. And now that they've made their home in exile, the danger is that they'll lose their identity as the people of God. You could say it this way, over time, the people heeded Jeremiah's advice, but they became a little too good at being at home in Babylon. (laughs) And now they're in danger of losing their Jewish identity as the people of God. They're in danger of being swallowed up by Babylonian culture and becoming Babylonians. And remember, God doesn't want them to be Babylonians because that's like everybody else. He wants them to be a peculiar people who live differently. And so we'll hear some from Jeremiah in the series, but we're also going to need to hear from Daniel. Because people like Daniel come along to teach the Jews how to live as exiles in a pagan culture. Daniel teaches the Jews how to engage responsibly with their society, with their culture, with their economics, with their politics, with their education, but keep everything subordinate to the fact that there is only one God. And Daniel would say his name is Yahweh. We would say his name is Jesus. (laughs) That's what we're going to have to figure out. How do we, as exiles in modern-day Babylon, invest in the place that we call home, but never compromise the fact that Jesus is Lord? Never moving Jesus to second place in anything. And it's hard, and I think that's why the book of Daniel is really helpful, because you're going to see somebody who rises, and Joseph did this too, rises to basically second place in, in the empire. I mean, Daniel's second to Nebuchadnezzar, but he never compromises his standards and his convictions. And the thing is, Daniel is willing to risk because of his allegiance to God, to Yahweh. So Daniel's designed to teach and show Jews, and I I think it'll teach and show us a little bit about how to live in a pagan empire without being killed and without compromising our true identity as the people of God. How to learn to negotiate what can feel like competing allegiances. Daniel's going to show us that it's possible to maintain covenant identity while living in Babylon. We live in a very secular world. How do we seek the welfare of our city but maintain our allegiance to Jesus Christ? So that's what we're going to talk about. How to live responsibly and faithfully in exile. How to be a good American citizen without moving Jesus to second place. Well, and we'll see the denial then, some of the the ways that Israel responds in healthy ways to exiles. Denial gives way to acceptance. 
But the only way you can accept exile is through grief and lament. (laughs) Those of you who know me well know that grief and lament are really important to me in terms of how we keep our souls healthy. How we stay compassionate in in a world of rage and anger and blame and accusation. The people of God learned an outpouring of grief, of honest sadness. I mean, the book of Lamentations comes because of the destruction of Jerusalem and exile. The people of God gained the ability to name their losses. They wept. They, they wept over what was lost. They wept over the consequences of their sin. They took responsibility for their own sin and, and, and failing God. And we see, I mean, all through Scripture we see this lament, but I want to read Psalm 137. The whole psalm is pretty powerful. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. If you read the whole psalm and have questions, feel free to ask. But I'm just going to read the first six verses for today. We need to feel, feel the exile. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. When we remembered our home. (laughs) On the willows, on the trees, there we hung up, it says, our lyres. Lyres are small harps. They're just small harps. Don't think of a big harp. Think of a small harp. We hung up our harps. Now, I was going back. I I have notes on exile from seminary. I still have my seminary notes in these fun little notebooks. They're really cool. You wrote with a pen on these pieces of paper. It's really fun. And I was going back through my notes, and my professor, Dr. D.A. Carson, was talking about exile, he's talking about this passage. And he said, harps are instruments solely for joy. He said, think of a banjo. You don't play a banjo at a funeral, right? I mean, harps are, harps are for joy. And so the people are in exile and we, we can't play the harps. There's no joy. We can't sing the songs of Zion. It's destroyed. We hang up our harps. We leave them on the tree, for there are captors required of us. They asked us, they tormented us, sing songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? But we don't want to forget you, Jerusalem. Oh, I don't want to forget you. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. hope you feel some of the tension, some of the sadness. I know it's not fun, but it's important. It'll keep our souls healthy. We move from denial to grief and lament. We'll talk more about that. But another result of the exile was these prophets on the scene then dare to dream and to hope and to imagine that God really could. And it's all the way through. It's promised all the way through. You heard it in Deuteronomy. You heard it from Solomon. God will move. God has always done this. Maybe you feel you're in, a, you're in your own kind of personal exile. God will move. We don't live in denial. We can name our losses. We will lament and grieve that the world isn't the way we want it to be. But then we will hope and dream again. And we will imagine that God is doing something new. Because that's what God does. I mean, that's, I mean, again, we'll get there. But that's what sets the stage for Jesus. Return from exile. God's going to do something the world's never seen before. And here's the last passage I'll, I'll read, and then I'll try to give us a little bit of application, and then we'll receive communion. 
But if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 5, I mean, this is one of the, this is one of the, the high points of Scripture. <laughs> John the Revelator is actually in exile on an island, and he has this vision. And he said, in the, in, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, I saw a scroll written within, and on the back seal with seven seals, and I saw a, a strong angel proclaiming, Who's worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And the scroll is God's plan for redemption. The scroll is how God is going to redeem the world. That's what the scroll is. Who is able to redeem? Who is, who is able to open the scroll? And no, one's, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able. No one is, and, 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 and John is, is weeping. He says, I, I began to weep loudly because the way the world is is the way it's always going to be and we're doomed and we're going to remain in exile and we'll never get home. And then, I hope you feel the dramatic tension. Verse 5, one of the elders says to John, weep no more. Oh yes, you've weeped, but weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah The root of David, you and I know him as Jesus Christ, has conquered, and he will open the scroll. (laughs) And this is important. This ties to some of the stuff that God has to do in our lives in exile. John turns to look because there's all these beasts in Revelation, and of course, we need a lion, we need a beast that's bigger than those beasts that can conquer the beast, and the way we know everyone gets conquered, you never see a lion in the book of Revelation. We've talked about this. We don't want beast power. We want lamb power. (laughs) That's what we want. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. (laughs) Lamb power. Jesus on the cross. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He's the only one worthy. And all these creatures, these living creatures, the 24 elders fall down. And what does it say? Each Holding a harp. The exile's over. It's time for joy. I mean, Jesus says that in his own ministry. Why would we fast now? The bridegroom has come. It's time for joy. Take the harp off the tree and let's sing. And what should we sing? Well, how about this? Worthy are you to take the scroll. Worthy are you to open the seals. You are going to accomplish what God has always wanted to accomplish. You are going to do what we failed to do. And you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now all the world is invited into this thing God was doing through the Jews. And what have you done? You finally made them a kingdom and priests, a priestly nation. And they'll reign on earth. And you've got all these angelic Beings, they're they're worshiping. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. Every creature is falling down and, 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 and giving blessing to the Lamb. To the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might and forever. And they yelled, Amen. Amen? Amen. Such an awesome chapter. <laughs> it's time for joy again. This is the big story of exile. So in the weeks ahead, we're going to keep to the old roads. We're going to go back to the ancient past. We're going to learn from the ancient prophets over 2,000 years ago. We're going to to learn how to live in modern-day Babylon, but stay true to the confession that Jesus is Lord. We're going to take with us our old habits, our old customs, our old stories, our old memories, our old photographs. 
We're going to talk a little bit about the sacred elements of our faith, of baptism. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. We're going to worship, talk about the church calendar, creed, prayer. All these things give us an alternative script so we don't forget who we are. The Jews, they took their stories. They took their way of life. They took their calendar. We don't always think about this. The Jews in Babylon knew the Babylonian calendar. But they had their own calendar. They knew when it was Sabbath. They knew when it was Passover. They had their own calendar. Christians actually have their own calendar. And so we're going to finish this series on home and on exile. And then it's going to be Advent. And we're going to spend a year as a church, just one year. But we're going to spend a year as a church practicing the church calendar. We're basically going to... The church through for thousands of years, has kind of tried to orient their year around the life and ministry of Jesus. Seems like a good idea. We're going to do that. It's one of the ways we'll remember who we are. That'll begin in Advent. There are sacred things that give us an alternative script so we don't forget who we are. Or maybe another way you could say it is the Jews, they lived in Babylon, but they also rebelled against Babylon. They drew upon practices of their faith to resist being conformed by the world. I'm going to invite you to think of the daily act of rebellion, of grabbing a book that includes things that have been written. It's not new. It's thousands of years ago. Another language, another culture. I want you to daily rebel against modern-day Babylon and let this script form you. I want you to daily rebel against modern Babylon and do something crazy like not stare at a screen and contemplatively sit with Jesus. That is is radical rebellion in our world right now. I hope you see it is. We're going to practice. We're going to go back. We're going to keep to the old roads. And we're going to rebel because I believe you and I are incapable of not being shaped in the ways of greed and pride and selfishness. On our own. I mean, the, the way of the world is to be selfish. And you and I are not, it's the sinful nature. We're drawn to that. So we need to practice. We need to follow Jesus and practice the things of our faith that help us rebel against a secular age that says you don't need to pray. And you don't need to trust the Bible. It's dated. You do need to pray and you do need to trust the Bible. <laughs> I pray the Nicene Creed every day. If we don't do these things, we will be scripted and conformed into the world. And the world is currently ruled by the evil one, and we don't want that. We want to be formed by Jesus. We live in a secular age, in a modern-day Babylon. We live in an age of tribalism and rage and fear. So we want to rebel with the Word of God like Moses. And we want to rebel with the fruit of the Spirit like Paul. Let me ask you this. In our, in our current age of tribalism and rage and fear, do you think you're rebelling if you live with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? That's how we rebel. In fact, when we go into exile, those are the things that God is forming in us so that when we return from exile, that's who we are. We remember who we are. We follow a compassionate God who is patient and kind with us. So that's what we're going to do in this journey, if you're up for it. We're going to talk about these things. 
We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with his presence so we can be filled with this love, this patience, this kindness, this joy, and this peace. Sound good? You up for the, you up for the journey? All right. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion. Jesus, yeah, we, we, really, we, really, we really do um, ask a few things this morning. First, I mean, we've kind of been cultivating our hearts for this, but we want to continue to ask you to stir within us a yearning for home. Now, we don't want to live in denial. We don't want to be blind to what's happening around us. We do live in a secular time. We don't want to live in denial. We don't want to be blind. So help us to, help us to be able to grieve and name the ways that we live in a modern-day Babylon. But then help us to be rebellious in the spirit. <laughs> help us to be prophetic. Help us to dream and to hope and to look for, for new life and new birth and new creation. God, do something new with us. God, do something new with Crossview. We don't want to be like all the other nations. We want to be your peculiar, distinct people. We want to be a light in the darkness. And we don't want to assume that we already know what that means all the way. We want to, Holy Spirit, we want to be daily led by you. We want to rebel against the present age of anger and rage. Oh, Jesus, we want more lamb power. Would you give us lamb power? It's going to be risky, but it's the only way that leads to life. And to get our hearts ready for that, Jesus, we do need to be the kind of people who turn our hearts anew to you, who confess our own sins. It all starts with us. So Jesus, right now, as we prepare for communion, we confess our sins. God, I asked our church to even think, what have we lost in the last 18 months? If some of those losses in relationship are our fault, it's our sin, it's our pride, it's our lack of humility. Holy Spirit, would you convict us now? If there's damage in a relationship because we couldn't say, I forgive you, or we said words that we didn't mean to say in the moment because we weren't at our best. I mean, Jesus, you have lots to say about when we're not in right relationship with someone else. Would you hear our confession? And then, Jesus, as we experience your body and your blood, would we have the courage and the faith to live with assurance that we truly are forgiven? <laughs> it's good news. There's no shame anymore. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, the cool thing about the Lord's table, there's many cool things, but one of them is that this really is a time where we say to the world, we're arranging ourselves differently. Every single one of us comes to the table of the Lord as equals. There's no status here. God is doing something new. It's radical. It's crazy. It's what God is doing. All statuses get obliterated at the table of the Lord. We just come in the name of Jesus and in the name of love. So I ask you to come with humility. This is a gift that you don't deserve but it's freely given to you because you are one who is loved by God. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me.
And after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And I invite you to stand as we sing with the conviction that your sins are forgiven and new possibilities of life are before you.